Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. In season 11 of the podcast, we are exploring resilience, failure and forgiveness, leadership, belonging, and a variety of other topics that when done properly will help us perform our best. Today's guest is Christian Ron. A decade ago, Christian founded Normative, an organization helping companies track and reduce their carbon emissions. In our conversation, Christian and I talk about his previous work studying global catastrophic risks at Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. We discuss threats like nuclear war, runaway artificial intelligence, and we dive deep into climate change. Christian talks about the work Normative is doing to make carbon visible and how that fits into winning the fight against a warming planet. We finished the interview by discussing how society can shift key measurements away from GDP to things like well-being and happiness, and Christian gives advice for business and government leaders wanting to use this conversation to make their organizations stronger. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Christian, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Can you start out by telling us about your background? So my background is in maths and, and philosophy. People usually say that it's a bit of a strange combo, but to me, it sort of makes sense because philosophy are asking the hard questions like, what are we actually trying to optimize for in society, for instance, which is a question in ethics and how can we get knowledge, which is a question in, in epistemology, but mathematics is sort of specifying that. So whilst philosophy is telling us what to optimize, mathematics can sort of give us the tools for how to actually optimize that. Uh, so that's, that's my background. And I uh, studied in uh, Lund. So it's a big university town in Sweden. Your experience also includes time with Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute. You worked on issues related to global catastrophic risks. Is there a defined set of risks? So there's plenty of them, unfortunately. So I mean, one global catastrophic risk is climate change. It, it might not kill us all, or it probably won't, but we're still seeing like a mass extinction of species as a result of it. And it might take society back to a level where it's just a big, big waste. The second one could be, for instance, nuclear weapons. Only a few hundred could trigger something like global nuclear winter. But then there's also things like pandemics, both natural pandemics, but also engineered pandemics. But then there is also something like artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence is almost like a multiplier on a lot of the existing risks because it can aid you in the creation of, of, of these engineered pathogens or it can help you create even more dangerous weapons. Uh, so that's sort of the misuse scenarios of AI. Then there are multiple more like nature-based risks like supervolcanoes and asteroid impacts and, and so on. Where are you on the AI thinking, are you in the camp that says this is going to solve a lot of problems or are you more in the pessimistic camp that this could be the end of human domination on the planet? I think both can be true at the same time. I mean, it, it's obvious that AI can do a lot of good. I mean, for with the solving the protein folding problem, like the speed at which we can do drug discoveries is like humongous. 
I mean, we, we might even cure aging. We might need AI to build stable, you know, fusion reactors. So there's a lot of good things. We could have a scenario with like, where we live forever with un unlimited energy and, and abundance. But at the same time, just like human intelligence is a dual use technology. I mean, I can use my intelligence both for good or for bad. And the same way applies for artificial intelligence. It can be used both for good and for bad. So, I mean, I can use my, you know, we can use our human intelligence to create both nuclear power plants, which is good for the world, or nuclear weapons that is bad for the world. So, so I think the problem is when we get to the territory of capabilities where you can, in fact, create pathogens that has the possibility of making all life go extinct. So I think life is incredibly fragile and, and precious. Uh, so I'm, I'm very concerned with the growth of, of artificial intelligence. This is, this is something that I care passionately about, but think that type of problem has a lot of commonalities with the other problems like nuclear war or global pandemics or even climate change. I mean, most of these problems are global coordination problems where, in fact, in order to survive as a country in a global arena, you need to optimize for power. I mean, that is the best way to survive over time. And there is almost like this natural selection that is selecting for powerful nations. I mean, if you don't optimize for the military, we, we know what happens. I mean, the societies that lived more in harmony with, with nature, like indigenous communities, they're all dead because they were outgunned by the more powerful opponents. Uh, so there's a natural selection for power optimization in the arena of, of, of global politics and competition. And when it's the global arena of corporations, it's profit maximization that is the name of the game. So you rather maximize profit because that's when you get like, enough investment to, to ensure your future survival. So there is a sort of natural selection pressure for, for profit maximization amongst corporations that are leading to you know, climate change. It's, it's leading to pollution that kills the 20 million people per year, but it also leads to our current AI arms race. And it's, it's quite ironic when you think about it, both Sam Altman and, and Demis from DeepMind. So Sam Altman is, is OpenAI and Dario at Anthropic. Like everyone is saying AI can kill us. <laughs> this, this is probably, we should be very cautious, but they're all racing to build AI faster than the other one. And it's because they're stuck in this like game where in order to optimize profit, and if they don't do it, then they will, might get fired by, you know, their, their boards. Yeah, they, be, uh, they become irrelevant. And they are becoming irrelevant and someone else will take their place and someone else that might run even faster and be even more reckless. So it, it's sort of this arms race where everyone understands that it's stupid, but we do it regardless. So I think that is the fundamental sort of, you know, problem that we need to solve in order to survive over, over the, the long term. Let's shift gears a little bit here, because a decade ago, you started an organization called Normative. And before we get into what Normative does, I want to ask you about the philosophical underpinning behind Normative. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So we have 
all of these systems around the world that are optimized for the wrong things. And it's almost like we guide our societies, like the main governance algorithm, if, if you will, in society is still to this date natural selection in, in, in some way, you know, in, in order to survive as a corporation, you need to optimize for profit. In order to survive as a country, you need to optimize for power. And, and if you look sort of back at and, and zoom in on the problem of corporations specifically and profit maximization, I mean, the concept of profit, it was not handed to us by God. <laughs> It's something that we invented. We invented this arithmetic called double entry bookkeeping 600 years ago. So that's a specific way of accounting for a profit and loss statement. And, and that spread like wildfire. And then eventually we institutionalized that because it made it possible for you know, the state to collect taxes and it had a whole host of advantages. So we eventually said that all corporations, all businesses need to do this type of accounting. But also adding to that, we created this new thing that we invented called legal like entities or corporations where uh, you can in fact like own shares uh, of, of a business and, and you can trade those shares at stock markets and so on. And, and then we then collectively agreed upon that it is uh, a legal responsibility for businesses to optimize for profit, like this other thing that we invented a few hundred years earlier. And that is leading to all of these externalities like climate change and slave labor and, and you know, bad business practices and so on. So to me, like the one systematic way of, of changing that would be to uh, reinvent the way we account for success. So what if we actually account for the things that we intrinsically value, like uh, happiness and well-being and, and, and flourishing? I mean, it might sound a little bit vague, but through psychological research, it is possible to figure out what we actually like intrinsically value. So what, what if we optimize for all of those things instead? So that was the idea of normative. So the name normative comes from normative ethics which is a branch of ethics concerned with what, what you ought to do in different situations, what you ought to optimize for. So I try to go to a couple of enterprises and sell to them the idea of, okay, what if we account for <laughs> the negative and externalities that, that, that you're having, like the number of I don't know, animals that, that you kill and how much you affect like welfare and well-being. And, and needless to say, most enterprises were like, what the hell are you doing? Like, why the heck would we buy this at all? <laughs> so I had, we had to zoom in on a more specific problem. And that problem was climate change, like accounting for carbon emissions. Because we knew at that point in time, and that was almost 10 years ago now, that regulation has to come when it comes to enterprise carbon emissions accounting. So what if we at least build a way to account for carbon emissions where we can then internalize carbon emissions into the profit and loss statement of the business? Because if you release a bunch of carbon emissions, that is associated with like a business risk because 
that carbon emissions is creating a lot of harm. To, to quickly describe what you're doing, it's climate accounting. And in your words, you wanted to make carbon visible to these organizations. And how are you making money? Are these companies paying you for your accounting system? And, and what's their incentive for doing this? So they pay a annual subscription for our software and our services. Uh, and the reason why they want to do this is because of legislation. So the European Union, the UK, soon the US, and most recently California have made it mandatory for certain enterprises to disclose their carbon emissions. And in some cases to also have transition plans for how to reduce their emissions over time. So this is something that you have to do. And in the European Union, the fines could be up to 10 million euros if, if you don't do it. So companies have to do it to tick the box. The more forward-thinking companies, they're actually doing it for more than just a box-ticking exercise. They do it because they believe, and I think rightly so, that this is the way for them to stay relevant in the future. So, I mean, right now we have carbon taxes that are averaging five US dollars per ton. But in order to achieve our climate targets, those carbon taxes has to be raised by a factor of 20. And we have already carbon taxes like the CBAM in the European Union being implemented that, that are doing exactly that. So then that means that if you are not paying the carbon tax, someone else in your supply chain is paying for the carbon tax. And that carbon tax, you might hope that you can sort of push it to the end consumer of the product, but maybe it turns out that the end consumer is quite price sensitive and they will say, we're not going to buy your product at all at that price when you pay for all of your carbon taxes. And then you will essentially end up like Blockbuster when Netflix came, you will become entirely irrelevant. And the way to mitigate that from happening is to actually transition your business models towards net zero and transition your value chains towards net zero. In order to do that, you need like carbon accounting software such as normative. What sort of organizations are typically using this type of software? From sort of a compliance perspective in the European Union, all companies with more than 250 employees need to disclose their carbon emissions. But we typically work with the larger of enterprises because they don't just do it for a box ticking exercise. They're typically a bit more mature in terms of how they think about risk and looking at carbon from sort of the chief financial officer's perspective. So that could be, you know, someone like you know, Hitachi, for instance, or Restaurant Group and Morgamama, and we have Nordia or SCB and, and a bunch of different banks and private equities. Uh, but what most of them have in common is that they have a lot of emissions in their value chain. In terms of benefits for the organizations, I would imagine that from a recruiting perspective, recruiting of employees you know, there's a benefit to tracking your carbon emissions, reducing your carbon emissions. I would imagine as well that when you're 
vying for business when you're disclosing your carbon emissions and showing that your carbon emissions are going down, there's a greater likelihood that you're going to acquire new business. So it's not just the idea of reducing emissions, but there are a host of additional benefits. Am I right there? And what additional benefits am I missing? No, I think you're absolutely right. So the employee side of the equations is definitely correct. You can attract way more talent if you're taking carbon emissions seriously. I think most businesses that are recruiting from you know, the next generation and younger people will find that a lot of them want to work with companies that actually take climate change seriously. So, so it's, it's that element, but also like existing employees like I think a lot of executives can relate to the fact that, you know, some of their employees or managers might ping them on Slack and say like, hey, what are we doing in relation to our net zero targets? What are we doing in relation to climate? Uh, so you sort of might face that internal pressure from employees as well. Then you might face external pressure for, from investors. So for instance, if you want to IPO your company, you know, listed on the stock exchange, that is typically a part of like a hygiene criteria. You track your carbon emissions, you have a net zero plan in order to be future proofed. But then there is also the world of private equity, where most of the investors of the private equity funds are, are usually pension funds. And pension funds are starting to sort of redefine their fiduciary responsibilities. I mean, we're investing for someone who, who might go into pension like 40 years from now. We better make sure that there is a thriving planet in 40 years. It's a part of our fiduciary responsibility. So you will get better access to capital if you take carbon emissions seriously. So that's, that's another thing to, to keep in mind. But then there is also like the uh, you know, selling your, your products and the consumer angle. So a lot of businesses are starting to incorporate carbon emissions criteria and net zero criteria into their request for proposals, their RFPs. So if they say like, oh, hey, we want to build, buy a bunch of concrete from someone, instead of saying we are just going to buy the cheapest in their bidding criterias, they're, they're saying, you know, we want the lowest emissions as well. And sometimes they even, you know, have a price for the emissions in that type of, of, of equation. But then you also have like normal individuals that are more likely to be loyal towards a brand if, if that brand is taking climate and sustainability seriously. So, so those are sort of the main stakeholders. It's investors, it's employees, it is like consumers of, of your respective products. And then of course, like the legislative angle as well and compliance angle. What do you think carbon accounting looks like in 10 years? My hope is that, so some people might envision like the a bright future as a future where all products have carbon labels. It is transparent, the carbon emissions of every single company so consumers can see that and make better decisions. I would like that too, 
But I don't think that is the utopia that I'm looking at. My utopia is a utopia where nobody has to care about carbon emissions or not people like in their everyday life need to care about carbon emissions. So to take an analogy, if I go to a grocery store and, and buy an apple, I can trust that this apple, when I eat it, is not going to poison me and kill me. <laughs> so that's just a basic requirement that is there. Uh, so I don't have to look at like a lead poisoning index on the apple and oops, it was a bit higher. It killed me. But that's my fault as a consumer. I, I should have been more careful. You don't put the burden on, on the consumers. You put it on the enterprises. So my ideal future is a future where every single company is going net zero. They invested in all of the technologies like solar and wind, fossil free steel or whatever it might be in order to be net zero. They have invested in all of those technologies. They have invested in, in nature and reforestation, etc. So I as a consumer, I don't have to think twice. Just like when I go into the store and buy that apple, I don't have to think twice if it kills me. In the same way, I don't have to think twice, will this kill the planet? Uh, so I think that would be the ideal future where carbon emissions accounting and management and net zero is integrated into the business plan of every single business on the planet. Then you're out of business. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's, then we will have to find something else to account for. Then we will have to find, there's plenty of externalities to solve. But yeah, I would love to be out of business. That, that would be perfect. Then we have to branch to the next thing to incorporate into our big externalities ledger, if you will. Earlier in the interview and in our prep call, you talked about our incentive structures as being perverse. And you talked about profitability and power as being among these incentives. How should we be incenting companies and even individuals? I mean, I would love for us to build incentives uh, for a world. And this might sound a little bit vague. So, I mean, with carbon, I have a much clearer answer, right? I mean, we, we need to put the tax on carbon. We need to make it expensive to release emissions. Then we need like proper and reliable and accurate accounting for those emissions. So, so that you know, the ones that don't cut their emissions have to pay more in taxes and, and pay a price. I also want to remind myself and remind everyone else that I don't care about carbon in and of itself. Like, actually, I don't give a crap about carbon in and of itself. I don't care about carbon emissions on Venus because there is no sentient beings, at least to my knowledge, that can experience the consequences of carbon emissions on Venus. So what I care about is the broad consequences on well-being and welfare and happiness. So I wish we lived in a society with sort of almost infectious generosity. Like there are several studies and I need to like revisit those studies. I mean, sometimes with, with studies because of perverse incentives in academia, you can't always trust the studies because like you have perverse incentives where, where, where you need to have a headline grabbing, you know, study that will get you more money later on. But one such study, and I have to double check this, but, but there's a couple of these studies. So I think there's some, some truth to it, but 
know, if you smile and do a good act towards someone else, that is like infectious. That person is more likely to do a good act towards someone else in, in, in their network. So if we could somehow set up a system where we are more generous towards each other, where we care, measure the things that we truly care about, which is welfare, well-being, happiness, you know, generosity, then society would be a lot better. I don't exactly know how to build such a society, but that's something that we critically need to think about. I mean, especially as we are encoding principles of profit maximization into artificial intelligence. Huh? I mean, we, we're all aware of like fake news and, and how the social media algorithms that are powered by artificial intelligence are, are not, you know, bringing up the best sides of humanity. As a matter of fact, you will make more money if you have a clickbaity headline that will create outrage. So therefore, like in, in profit maximization terms, like they built the algorithms in the social media networks to maximize profit. So then they will show the polarizing, the outrageous, sometimes fake articles on, on the top because you're more likely to click ads as a result. So, so instead, we need to sort of change the incentive structures where you're more likely to spread love and, and generosity in, into the world. And I think even further, like social media algorithms are examples of AI doing harm today. But in, in the future, when we have completely autonomous agents, I mean, I think like in 10 years time, and probably less than 10 years time, it might even only be like three or four years from now, we will have the first AI powered enterprises where executive decisions are being made by AI agents. But AI agents are not encoded with the same morality as us. Like we are hardwired with altruistic behavior. That's how we have been forged by, by evolution. But AI algorithms are intrinsically psychopaths. I mean, they only optimize around the thing that we give them. I mean, we give them a sort of utility function that they're supposed to optimize and they do everything to optimize that narrow success metric. So it's absolutely critical that we come to an understanding. What are those core success metrics that we want to give to these AI systems that will shape the future of humanity and all life on this planet in, in the next couple of years? So and there we need to go back to like values. We need to go back to, to ethics. We, we need to go back to like moral psychology and, and, and and figure out like what is it exactly that, that we want. So we build these systems in, in, a, in a way that is aligned with humanity. You had talked about the carbon tax being $5 a ton and that it needs to be 20 times higher. So who is implementing that tax and how or what's the likelihood that it becomes 20 times higher? That's a great question. I mean, right now it is up to each individual country to do that. I mean, the main sort of meeting ground that we have is the COP climate conference, like the UN climate conference. This year it will take place in the United Arab Emirates. I'm a part of the Swedish delegation going there. And it is up to each individual country. Like right now, the European Union is leading the way 
in a lot of these carbon taxes. So for instance, the European Union have their trading system of, of you know, carbon rights where, you know, if, if, if you release a bunch of emissions, you need to pay a price for, for, for those uh, emissions. And if you don't release your emissions, you can sort of sell the right to really for, for someone else to release those emissions. So you sort of have a cap, like a cap and trade type system. Uh, what the European Union have seen as well is, is that due to that cap and trade, there is almost like a race to the bottom where, you know, companies might flee and move their production to a place where they won't have the carbon tax. And that's what we're seeing in taxation in general with tax havens. So what the European Union did recently with something called the CBAM is, I mean, if you move the factories outside of the European Union, producing a bunch of goods and then exporting that back to the EU, then you have to pay the tax at the border in order to avoid that so-called leakage where, where carbon is being moved to the place where, where it's not taxed. Um, so I think it's very important that we have like global coordination around these things. So it's not a global sort of race to the bottom. So yeah. And, and am I optimistic? Like it is hard to be an optimist these days. I mean, what makes me optimistic is that we know the problem. We know what it is. We have the technologies to solve the problem. Uh, what is currently lacking is political will. It's not like a feat of brilliance or engineering or nothing else that we don't know how to do. Like we know what to do. We just need to get it done. So that makes me optimistic. But what makes me less optimistic is, is again, these like sort of perverse incentives and selection pressures where, oh, like I can make a bit more money if I can become sort of the tax haven or carbon, if, if, if you will. But I think we will slowly get there because it's like non-optional and non-negotiable. Like we can't negotiate with planet nature or processes of nature. Like the climate is going to do what it's going to do. We can't tell it to stop. We need to stop what we are doing. There's no pause button. Yeah, exactly. There is no pause button. What advice would you give to business leaders and how can they use this conversation to make their organization stronger? I would encourage business leaders to be courageous because sometimes there is, or quite often there is a status quo bias. And if you just stick to the status quo, then you're not going to survive for very long. You need to innovate over time. And this transition towards net zero, that's the biggest move of capital in, in the history. Like we need like hundreds of trillions moved from non-sustainable companies and activities to sustainable companies and activities. And in that movement, there will be winners and there will be losers. So if you take a strategic perspective on carbon. And if you're courageous enough to take a strategic perspective on carbon, uh, then you are going to end up uh, amongst the winners in, in that transition. And it's an amazing and exciting opportunity because whenever there is constraints, regardless if it's constraints on carbon emission or something else, like 
we will have innovation and, and we will create a lot of new jobs and, and there are opportunities to sort of you know, disrupt existing markets and, and so on. Any advice to government leaders? Be courageous and, and let's talk about a carbon tax. Like we have taxed a bunch of things in the past, like tobacco and dangerous chemicals and, and things that, that are bad for society. And every time we do, it's actually fine. You know, like it, it might be a bit of a awkward thing to do. It might be unpopular for some time, but we're all very resilient. Like we are gonna, you know, make it like taxing something is, is actually not like a big deal. I mean, you, you, we, we are all going to survive and we're all going to be a lot better off, similar to how we are, I believe we are better off from, from taxing like uh, you know, gambling and, and, and tobacco and, and alcohol and, and, and those types of things. What are we doing now in the year 2023 that the people in 50 years will look back at our behaviors and disbelief. And it doesn't have to be around carbon or climate. It can be any of uh, uh, our current behaviors. What's, we would say, normal behavior right now? I think they will look at our coordination problems and sort of laugh. Almost everyone realizes that carbon emission is, is, is bad and still we continue to, to race towards releasing it. And something like the AI arms race, like, what the heck? Like, even the big CEOs of all of these companies say that it's a bad thing and then they still engage in it. Like, that is freaking stupid. So I think they will probably look back at the global coordination problems that we're facing where we create arms races and be like, okay, like, that's not particularly advanced because they probably have a you know, better consensus building mechanisms they have a more solid understanding of sort of the game theoretical underpinnings of cooperation and how to make cooperation flourish in, in the first place, where they can easily say like, okay, we just need to do X, Y, and Z, and then everyone will coordinate. So like all types of tragedy of the commons or prisoner's dilemma type arms races are just going to be a thing in, in, in the past. And, and we will, will, you know, solve for that. Uh, and maybe they will more broadly think like, shit, like, you know, we're all smart and rational and still we govern our societies through like good old natural selection. That doesn't seem like super advanced of, of governing our societies on the international arena where the most powerful win or the most profitable win, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we should like govern it through intelligence and, and, towards like smarter outcomes that are based on what we intrinsically value instead. Christian, thank you for your time today and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will return next week when I interview Sven Nader. Despite never starting a game for two national championship basketball teams at UCLA, Swen went on to have a distinguished professional basketball career. In our conversation, we discussed the leadership lessons he learned from his legendary coach at UCLA, John Wooden, and how Swen has applied those lessons to his life after basketball. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.